This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, welcome to Bloomberg Business Week, live here on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm Romain Bostic here alongside Carol Masser. And of course, uh, one of the big stories uh, of today and really uh, of the past few weeks has been Tesla. Uh, the company has, uh, the company's stock has really been on a tear. A lot of good news uh, starting to creep back uh, into the market for Tesla. The company winning an exemption of a 10% purchase tax for its China-built Model 3 sedans, potentially a boon for Elon Musk company as it prepares to begin deliveries locally there as soon as Monday. Here with more is Bloomberg's Dana Hull, who covers the company. She joins us right now on the phone. Dana, so what do we know about this new line of vehicles that are expected to roll off uh, the assembly lines over the next couple of days? Sure. So to be clear, these are Model 3s, which Tesla currently makes uh, in Fremont, California, and they are now assembling Model 3s in China. So they are not fully 100% produced there in China, but they are assembled there. And, you know, this is a big key step uh, in the vision of the company, which is to have, you know, local factories for the local market. And early next week, they will deliver the first of those made-in-China vehicles to Tesla employees. I think what's cool about this, Dan, and I think you wrote about it for the magazine, you know, this whole idea of what Elon Musk has been able to do in China specifically, build this plant pretty quickly. You know, he really made or developed relationships with some of the Chinese officials. I mean, he really has ramped up pretty quickly in China. At least it feels that way. Yeah, and I think it's and, and I think it's significant because you know a year ago people were sort of questioning whether this factory would ever be built. Uh, you know, a, a year ago it was it was a muddy field. It didn't look like anything was really happening. But the speed with which construction was finished and permits were uh, given to the company, you know, power was arranged. I mean, a, a lot of this really did require close coordination with government officials in Shanghai, and they are deeply invested in this factory success as well. Yeah. So you talk about uh, the sentiment. Uh, I mean, this was a stock that basically started the year down uh, about ha- about 50%, essentially, uh, through the first five months of the year. Of course, it's been on a phenomenal rally since then, hitting, uh, of course, a record high uh, yesterday and passing that 420 mark. How critical is this Chinese plant uh, to Tesla's ambitions to become a bigger and presumably a more profitable car company? Well, I think the, the, the rally in the shares that you're seeing is sort of twofold. Uh, you know, Tesla reported a surprise third quarter profit in October, and the shares have really kind of been on a tear ever since. Um, and the last shareholder letter, you know, in the earnings call, I mean, they, they talked not just, I mean, it was not just the profit, but 2020, there's a lot of positive pet catalysts. They're having a battery investor day in the first quarter. The Model Y production has been moved up, and China has come online very quickly. And even though there are some questions about what the sort of overall market for electric vehicles in China is, Chinese consumers still appear to be very interested in Tesla as a brand. Um, and you know, and and the, and the brand is very and the brand is very strong there. And you know, this is all this. The backdrop is that, of course, we have this sort of ongoing trade war and trade tensions with China and the U.S. government, and yet. 
Shanghai has really stepped in and, and is invested in Tesla's success. Tesla has arranged financing with Chinese banks. And, you know, this is really, you're seeing a shift where Tesla is going from being like this niche automaker that only made cars in California, which is very expensive, to one where the global ambitions are becoming much clearer. I mean, the, the factory in China is sort of step one. You know, ne- next we're going to see a factory in Germany. You know, this is what I have a hard time getting my getting my head around, Dana, is that, as you mentioned, Chinese officials in China seem to be very invested in Tesla being successful in their country. At the same time, we know China has this long-term plan to be dominant in high-tech industries. I mean, they've got their own domestic car industry that they're trying to develop as well. You know, why is it that they seem to be so welcoming uh, to Tesla specifically when we know they're on a mission to develop their own domestic industries and domestic companies? Yeah, I think it's interesting because you know, so Tesla is the first foreign automaker that's been allowed to build a factory without having a joint venture requirement. Right. So that was sort of like a huge breakthrough for Tesla. They're the first that has ever been able to crack that. All of the other OEMs, like BMW, et cetera, have a joint partner. And the and the markets are very different. I mean, the the Chinese car, the Chinese companies that make electric vehicles tend to be lower end models, and and the higher end companies like Neo are really struggling right now. So, I think you see China kind of welcoming Tesla as a brand. I mean, the, the Tesla brand is very strong there. It's a lot like Apple. Um, and they're trying to show that their their economy is open and that they're not protectionist. Um, you know, I think there's still a lot of concerns in some mm-hmm. quarters about the potential for China to steal IP and, um, you know, what, what what is autopilot going to look like on Chinese streets and is this really a good deal for, um, you know, long, long term? But, I mean, it seems to be going really well. I mean, I don't think this factory would be up and running if there wasn't right. a huge vested interest in it right. being successful. You mentioned NEO there. I mean, let's broaden it out because one of the uh, knocks on Tesla and really on the stock for a while was this idea of competition. We had, uh, there were all these reports of all these other car companies uh, trying to build their own uh, electric, uh, fully electric vehicle. Uh, none of those either materialized or they didn't materialize in any sort of grand scale. Is that still a threat uh, to Tesla or do they pretty much have this uh, to themselves, this market to themselves for the time being? I mean, I've, I, I have always argued that this whole sort of threat of the Tesla killer coming around the bend was really overblown in part because if you think about it, I mean, Tesla is an electric car company. They don't make any other car, whereas all of the other automakers make both. And so you have this sort of conflict of interest internally where, you know, if you go to a to a GM dealership or a Ford dealership and you say you want to buy an electric car, is the dealer going to steer you to the electric car or are they, they going to steer you to the internal combustion engine one? I mean, no, all these other automakers have sort of internal conflicts about um, what they're selling, and they make most of their money selling big gas-guzzling SUVs. And so Tesla, first of all, doesn't have to do that. Secondly, Tesla has first-mover advantage. I mean, it, it IPO'd in 1910, a, a decade on. Mm-hmm. Like, if you think electric car, you think of a Tesla. And so, sure, people are going to comparison shop, and there might be some conquest. But you know, this idea that the Audi e-tron or the Jaguar or the I-Pace or any of these other brands are going to suddenly swoop in and, and take market share just hasn't materialized. And a lot of these other cars that we that were promised as Tesla killers have been delayed um, or their market launch in the U.S. has just not been very strong. So I know Hannah Elliott, our uh, car reviewer for Bloomberg Pursuit, says she cannot wait for the Cybertruck from Tesla. But just got about 30 seconds here, Dana. What are you looking for? What do you think are going to be some of the interesting Tesla stories uh, come next year? Just quickly. 2020 is all about the Model Y, China, 
uh, how fast they they get started on the Gigafactory and whether autopilot is uh, full self, whether they actually sort of ship full self driving with their autopilot feature. And no chance that he's going to take Tesla private. It did go above four hundred and twenty dollars a share. I'm just saying, Dana. <laughs> I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> All right. Always, always love talking to you. You have got your finger on everything uh, when it comes to Tesla. Uh, Dana Hall, of course, uh, our Bloomberg Technology reporter, joining us on the phone in San Francisco. And Tesla shares, you know remain. They're up about 29% yeah. this year. There's still about 19% uh, of the yeah. outstanding float is being shorted, but still it has had quite a run and continues to defy those naysayers. Yeah, and a lot of these bulls, I mean, they are loyal to this stock. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week here live on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. I'm Romain Bostic alongside Carol Masser. And Carol, it's been a huge year mm -hmm. for plant-based proteins. Right. We saw Beyond Meat, right, going yeah. public, although but, investors have kind of tossed it around a little bit. Yeah, they went public, still up about 200% since that IPO. And some on Wall Street, though, they're still unconvinced that the stock can repeat this year's stellar performance. We want to talk about that outlook, not only for Beyond Meat, but really for just the plant-based protein sector as a whole. We're joined right now by Jordan Gaspar. She's managing partner of Asel Foods, which provides much-needed financing options for early growth food and beverage brands. Jordan, thanks for joining us. I guess question number one, is this a fad or is this here to stay? Plant-based foods, we're all going to be eating it? Uh, thank you so much for having me. So plant-based foods most certainly are not a fad. I think that we've got to remember that we've been consuming soy and almonds and all sorts of other products you know, for as long as, as people have been you know, eating food more generally. So you know, for me, when we think about the idea of whether or not this is a fad, you know, that's not something that we even entertain. I well, think that we just have to realize that we're repurposing it into our diets in a way that people are more familiar with the, the staples that we've been consuming. Jordan, one of the things I love about your company, and you guys um, have invested in a variety of food companies. I was looking at some of the brands, Aloe uh, Glow, I think it's Aloe Water, um, Kid Fresh, Roar Organic, Tea Drops. Um, and I just think it's interesting, you know, kind of some of the different places that you've been putting some of your investments and being involved in. Tell me what you're seeing in terms of trends. I mean, we've talked so much about protein-based foods, but I'm curious where you're seeing a lot of the investment dollars going, where there's interest. Uh, appreciate it. So we, we're an investor in packaged food and beverage brands. We've got you know, just over $100 million under management. And plant protein is certainly uh, an area of high investment for us. But we're also investing pretty heavily into better-for-you snacks. Um, I'd say anything with, with high functionality, which is you know, most aptly geared towards functional beverage, um, portable and convenient you know, handheld solutions, um, and then, you know, something new that's going to be cropping up this year is going to be this concept of ingestible beauty, which you will start to hear more and more about in the media. What is that? So, <laughs> ingestible beauty. Um, so, you know, in our universe, the gut health has been something we've long since been discussing, um, you know, and, and food that, you know, prebiotics, probiotics, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about the impact of um, fermented foods on the digestive system. But increasingly, we're going to start to see that it's not just going to be about gut health. Um, but it's also going to be about the impact of ingesting products that can help your skin. And so we're doing a lot of thinking around um, ingestible beauty more broadly. You know, we have an investment in Four Sigmatic, which is you know, certainly at the forefront of functional foods, and they have actually a skincare line. Um, and I'd say that it, it, it 
gears towards and it points towards that there's a broader wellness movement where there's now going to be a convergence between beauty and health and foods more generally. So with regards to that wellness movement, I mean, we've been through, uh, I guess, various periods of this where, it, we, where there's been a lot of awareness. We've seen smaller companies sort of enter this space. Do those smaller companies then become the next, I guess, gigantic food brands or do those smaller companies essentially end up getting bought uh, by the larger uh, current companies like a Unilever or some other sort? Both. Um, so, you know, that's the, the entire thesis is that they, these companies will either become quite large or they'll be bought and then become quite large. And so if we look at our portfolio, um, you know, and, and you think about the impact of coconut water, Harmless Harvest is certainly at the forefront um, as a leader in, in coconut water more broadly. Um, but, you know, it, in terms of plant protein, you know, we do, there's a lot of discussion around um, beyond Meat, we're heavy investors into Alpha Foods, which is an on-the-go solution. And I think that what we're seeing is, is that these companies that start very small are, are growing very quick, quickly and rapidly because the retailers are definitely showing a strong commitment to bringing them in. I do also wonder, Jordan, because I love this idea of either herbal sub supplements um, and, you know, things that are much more natural uh, or grown plants in terms of introducing them into your, giant, but I, into your diet. But I do wonder about the regulatory oversight and kind of standards in all of this. I mean, we're seeing this with the CBD market, right? We're trying to kind of understand all these products that are coming out, but there's a lot of rules and regulations that I think are needed there before the market to really, or for our consumers to really understand the market. How do you see that playing into all of this? It's a very good question. So the CBD market is um, definitely under a lot of pressure in terms of the regulatory landscape, which is one of the reasons why a lot of the investors in our space are not yet jumping in to back CBD products. Um, we're seeing CBD find its way into the innovation pipelines of a lot of young brands, but you know CBD is, is still yet um, yet to be determined about sort of how we're going to be regulating this, you know, not just from a long-term perspective, but, you know, the, regu the regulatory climate's changing sometimes by the week. Mm -hmm. um, natural foods is a little bit more progressed, and so, you know, there is a really But it's well not organic, right? Where organic, there's really strict standards. Uh, there's strict standards for organic, and there's strict standards for, you know, vegan products, mm. gluten-free. I mean, there, all of, all of the, these, you know, sort of indicators are all regulated, but the most important thing is, is for young brands to make sure that their labels are articulating what's actually in the package. And so we're big proponents of making sure that the labels are in compliance um, and, and any good quality brands are doing that. So, uh, Jordan, the other issue uh, that has come up a lot with the folks not only wanting to eat healthier and really just have products that uh, I guess they can feel a little bit better about buying and consuming is also the packaging. Uh, and I remember there were a couple of companies that had a uh, products that I think were well received, but there was a lot of complaints that the packaging wasn't uh, either uh, recyclable or biodegradable or sustainable in any way. Is that something that you address with the companies you invest in? We do. And, and I think we're also seeing that there's going to be a big shift into more sustainable packaging. You know, obviously with the increase in purchasing power of Gen Z um, and aging baby boomers, you're thinking more eco-friendly, you know, sustainable packaging is going to be a big priority in 2020. Um, I think that, you know, as food service continues to open up more broadly, you know, we'll also continue to see packaging innovation come in. And so, um, you know, beverage in particular, you know, we've seen a lot of pressure in terms of plastic bottles. Right. You know, and so now we're seeing movements into aluminum, which I think is definitely going right. to be, continue to Got increase. It. Hey, Jordan, we got to run, but be sure to check back in over the year because it's really interesting what you guys are doing. Jordan Gaspar of Acel Foods joining us. 
This is a special edition of Bloomberg Business Week, live on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. I'm Carol Masser, along with my co-host Romaine Bostic, in for Jason Kelly. And so one of the big stories that has certainly caught our attention on this Friday has to do with one of the big banks. We're talking about Wells Fargo. Lots of changes, including, of course, it got a new CEO this year, Charlie Scharf. And apparently he's taking uh, a pretty strict look at some of the uh, bank's activities, trying to weed out some of those bad practices. So let's get into it with Chanali Bostic. She covers Wall Street for us here at Bloomberg News. Shanali, Wells Fargo, um, yeah, it's got a new CEO. Tell us a little bit about what's going on internally at Wells Fargo. So this is a great story today by Hannah Levitt, who covers Wells Fargo for us. And really what's happening here is Charlie Scharf, who's been known for his time at Visa and JP Morgan, is really one by one going through his executives, figuring out what their plan is, how they run their businesses, and how they maybe can change it moving forward. Remember, they have to deal with regulators, right. but they also have to sit there and be competitive um, in a very competitive environment right now. But it's also a culture thing for Wells Fargo because right. this is the problem right. after several scandals, one after another, I think everybody's wondering about what internally was going on at the at the company. And a little bit of history here, Wells Fargo is known as one of those places where you have grown up and mm -hmm. risen within the bank. And so now to have an outsider here for the first time in such a long time is really remarkable. And everyone's kind of looking around and saying, where do I fit in? Well, and so one thing that was interesting about this story was, was not only just how dramatic some of the uh, options uh, that Sharf is considering, but one thing they talked about in the story was this idea of really improving the relationship uh, with its three main regulators. Well, that's the most important thing, because remember, Fe uh, Wells Fargo is still under an asset cap in which it cannot grow <laughs> until it fixes all of its problems. So Charlie Sharf, when he talked to investors on his first day after being hired to the job, he did tell everybody that, listen, you can't expect anything from us until we fix our regulatory problems. Mm -hmm. And so until that happens, you can't ask me to make a new strategic plan for the company. Meanwhile, investors certainly want that from him. But it's interesting, right, what kind of leader that they've gotten. And I think it's interesting that he's really looking at the different businesses, right, looking at the leaders and trying to understand what's going on there. By the way, there are already some new faces at the top. He yeah. hired Bill Daly, for example. Yes, the former White House chief of staff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he also hired Scott Powell, who was the former head of Banco Santander's U.S. business. We'll see who else he's going to bring These on board. These are the budding alliances, right, exactly. that we're seeing already at the bank. The budding alliances. Scott Powell worked at J.P. Morgan as well, wondering if more J.P. Morgan alumni will come over to follow him to Wells Fargo. Not an easy cleanup act. Okay, so a lot of hiring. What about uh, calling the herd a little bit? Are, are, is there any worry here uh, that we could see a reduction in staff? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a worry at Wells Fargo and everywhere among the big U.S. banks. Right now, we only have had two where we've heard of really significant job cuts. Uh, that's Citigroup and that's Morgan Stanley, both of which have uh, better performing stock prices than Wells Fargo this year. Wells Fargo is the laggard among the top five U.S. banks. Yeah, and I think it, I think you're absolutely right. They've got to make sure that there's not going to be any more problems going forward, right, and that regulators can trust them as an entity, a financial entity. And by the way, while Wells Fargo has an asset cap and can't grow, yeah. J.P. Morgan and Bank of America are rushing to not only open more branches across the United States, they're also making a massive digital push in terms of grasping new consumers, which have really been the heartbeat of the banking sector. All right, then we got to talk about job cuts. Yes. All right, what's going on? I feel like the, all of 2019, we heard banks cutting jobs, right. but then they were hiring in the tech sector. So it's kind of been a back and forth, but it's not been a great year. It hasn't been a great year. And what's remarkable about it is 2018 was a record year. Remember, it was profitable, uh, record yeah. profitability for so many banks. And so to see this after that, yes, 80% of these cuts are in Europe, to be clear. 
However, these are very broad-based cuts. And Morgan Stanley, a lot of these cuts also come from technology and operations. And so, uh, and then you also have some trading cuts on top of that, maybe some in wealth management across the board. The European banks are really worried about their retail divisions. So... To be fair, Deutsche Bank is a big one, right? It's the biggest contributor to this. Well, and even when you factor out the European banks, so I mean, there is still a lot of shifting in just the strategy these banks are taking, and that's required them to sort of rethink uh, some of their staffing. And and remember, a lot of these European banks have other headwinds. Mm -hmm. HSBC was adding jobs, which is why it's disappointing now to see them cutting in investment banking and in retail branches across the world. But they also have to contend with negative interest rates, some of these banks in some parts of the world, uh, European regulation. What's hard also is these European banks have humongous U.S. footprints. That's something to remember. Right. And I think what's fascinating is you've seen these big banks that have come out of the financial crisis just get bigger, right? Either yes. through consolidation. And so we'll have to see whether that continues in 2020, kind of what's left. My note of optimism here <laughs> is that the fintech sector has really raised record amounts of money. Yeah. And after we work, the most profit, or sorry, the most valuable company in the U.S. is Stripe. All right, going to leave it there. Always on top of what's going on on Wall Street, Shanali Basik of Bloomberg News. Live from Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. I'm Romain Basic alongside Carol Masser. Uh, Carol, I mean, only about 10 minutes left here in the trading day, 10 minutes left in the trading week. We're pretty much flat uh, on the day, but still, nevertheless, an up week, up about six tenths of a percent on the S&P 500. Which is what I think is interesting. Everybody's going to be looking at their 401ks, right, to wrap up the year. And even today, despite a little bit of a pullback here in the S&P, as you said, flat overall, but the S&P a little bit lower, NASDAQ a little bit lower. We did hit records earlier in the day, so we continue to see some of the momentum, even in a light volume day but yeah. uh, I think it's going to be you know you go back a year yeah well, a uh, lot December of people were looking at their 401ks back then and they were moving into cash and saying I don't want to be exposed to this market exactly. uh, and of course you know as a long-term strategy that's not always a good one to try to time the market but if you did try to time it you were definitely uh, missing out on uh, what is wrapping up to be uh, I believe the last time I checked this is going to be the fourth best annual performance for the S&P 500, I believe, uh, going back something like three or four decades. Yeah, so that's yeah. pretty That's pretty substantial. I, I mean, uh, you take a look at whether it's your mid-caps, whether it's your small caps. I mean, for a while, I feel like market uh, watchers were talking about, I'm just going to pull up uh, the Russell 2000 here, and that is up, up to almost 24% this year. For a while, the small caps were lagging, but they have even had quite a significant bounce back. And if you take a look at yeah. the broader picture of what we've seen in terms of the big caps, I mean, all of the major industry groups uh, in the S&P 500 are higher. At the bottom is the energy names, and we've mm. we've seen the energy story, right? We've talked about overcapacity. We've talked about less demand. Uh, but really, it's about just that there's so much out there in terms of the energy space, which has put pressure on the price of oil, which has put pressure on those major integrated oil companies. Has also meant you're not going to necessarily be spending on new pro- yeah. projects. Energy's up about 7.5%. And we'll see whether that's maybe one of the areas that investors – maybe take a look at in 2020. All right. Well, I think we have uh, someone who uh, can talk a little bit more about this, probably knows a lot more about the markets here. Uh, we're joined right now by Ryan Nauman. He's a market strategist over at Informa Financial Intelligence. Uh, Ryan, uh, great to have you here on what uh, is still shaping up to be uh, a great year for the markets, despite us being uh, slightly down today. Uh, when you look at the gains we have right now, you look at the outlook, the economic outlook, the fundamental outlook for 2020. You still want to be overweight equities going into next year? First of all, uh, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes, I I think so. 
You're exactly right. Uh, 2019 has been a stellar year. Uh, we're really close right now to, you know, having the best annual performance for the S&P 500 in a couple decades. Uh, valuations are getting a little stretched, but I do believe it's still a ton to be overweight equities. The U.S. expansion, economic ex- expansion, is going to continue. There's really that fear of a recession has receded recently, and I look for earnings growth to pick back up and uh, provide that boost there for 2020. Ryan, let's talk about some of the sectors that you like. We mentioned earlier, Romain and myself, we were looking at the major industry groups in the S&P 500 this year, and they've all seen gains at that bottom of the pack as energy, at the top as information technology, up about 48% so far. Uh, in terms of some of the areas you like, where do you think investors should be committing new money come 2020? Yeah, it's a great question. I still like consumer-driven sectors. I think the consumer is going to remain strong going into 2020 and still support the U.S. uh, economy. I do like technology. That phase one trade deal will provide some support there. But there's going to be some ongoing uncertainties, and I think there's going to be some buying opportunities for technology. And finally, I really like financials, too. I know a lot of people have been talking about financials over the past year or so, uh, but the Fed is going to stay on the sidelines in 2020. Mm. I think with the solidifying global economy, yields are going to increase, and that's going to benefit financials uh, moving forward. So, Ryan, when you go through the uh, 11 major S&P sectors year to date, uh, the two at the bottom, energy and healthcare. at some point in the middle of this year, healthcare was on a monster rally. A lot of folks thought uh, we were out of the woods with regards to some of the regulatory and Washington-related issues with regards to some of these healthcare stocks. Is that still the case? I do. I'm a little um, cautious on healthcare moving forward, and a lot of it has to do with it coming from the political front. As we move into an election year, healthcare and pharmaceutical and drug prices are going to be talked a lot about uh, over the you know leading up to November, and that's going to put a lot of pressure on healthcare sector, particularly the pharmaceuticals and those drug makers. And it just um, makes me a little bit more cautious moving forward in healthcare. So anything defensive, it sounds like you also don't like. I mean, healthcare aside, which can be a defensive play, but you're more concerned about the political impact there. But REITs and utilities, um, which are considered places that investors often go when they're looking for some safe havens, you don't like them either. You're exactly correct. REITs and utilities had a great run in 2019, as a lot of investors remained defensive despite the stellar uh, returns elsewhere. I just think, you know, REITs and utilities are a great bond-like proxy. And I feel going into 2020, you're going to get an uptick in yields. And whenever you get an uptick in yields, REITs and utilities tend to falter. So, I think there's going to be some headwinds there for REITs and utilities, especially if the global economy solidifies, the U.S. economic picture remains solid, and REITs and utilities uh, will lag. Uh, What about the relative performance, uh, Ryan, particularly when you talk about the U.S. uh, versus Europe, the U.S. versus emerging markets? A lot of folks say emerging markets sort of ripe for a rebound. It's a great question. And Emerging markets in the Eurozone, their valuations are great, um, very, very attractive there. And the 
global economy looks to solidify in 2020, which all points to a rebound for Eurozone and emerging market. With that being said, I'm not quite ready to jump in with both feet there in those two regions. A lot of it has to do with there's still some uncertainties. We still have some Brexit uncertainties. You still have weakness in Germany and Italy. Um, And when you compare that weakness to what's going on in the U.S., where the Fed still has more room to remove maneuver, even though I don't think they will, uh, the U.S. economy remains stronger than the global economy. I just like U.S. I think the U.S. is in a better position than uh, the eurozone in emerging markets, even though there's attractive valuations. It's there. always all about relativity, right? Uh, you know, in terms of what <laughs> markets, even though this may be overpriced, the U.S. market are getting a little pricey. You're still comparing it to some of the other global markets that are out there. Um, we're going to run. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much. Happy New Year. Ryan Newman, he's analyst and market strategist at Informer Financial Intelligence, joining us on the phone from Nevada. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.